Would you please bow with me in prayer? Holy Father, your word is truth. Build your church through your word. Save sinners today through your gospel. Lord, help us to be doers of your word, not just hearers, and guide us to walk in newness of life in your glorious name. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me is the fact that the human body heals itself. Now, of course, God is the one who heals, but he does it through the means of creating a body that restores cells and things like that. Scars are an interesting thing. I, I have several scars, and, and mine are pretty bad. I, you know, when I get a cut, it's usually a pretty bad scar for, for the rest of my life. I, I just had a, a slight scab on my uh, hand for moving boxes a few months ago, and now the scar looks worse than the actual cut did. I have a bad scar on my shoulder from when I was 12 years old having soldier, uh, shoulder surgery. I have tons of scars on my knuckles from being a football defensive end in high school and college from hitting face masks and getting, my, uh, getting cleats stepped on my hands. So I have those memories there from all these scars on my knuckles. But scars are reminders of history. I remember the time of the injury, and some of you have many stories of where you got your scars from. The thing about scars is the skin is just as good, and if not tougher, than the original skin. It comes back tougher, but they will always be there as a sign of something. They signify something went wrong but was healed. We need reminders. We need history. We need to reflect on the past, in many cases, to help us persevere in the present. The passage we'll examine this morning is about, one, about a great injury, but also a great healing. A healing of which has one glorious aim, and the reminder of it is needed to finish the race. We need to hear this as a church as we grow in grace together. So as we, over the next few weeks, we'll look at the practical ins and outs of the, the operations of the church, but we also need to keep this passage in the forefronts of our minds as we continue. So this morning we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. First Timothy 1, the end of this chapter, of course, it was preceded with Paul's charge to Timothy to correct those who are teaching in a way that was wandering away from the gospel as proclaimed by the apostles. Now in verses 12 through 20, he demonstrates for us what this gospel is, what it is for, and how Timothy and we are to daily apply it to our lives. We shall see Christ's purpose to save as for his glory. And then we'll notice that Christ's purpose to save motivates our perseverance. First, 
Christ's purpose to save is for his glory. Look at verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So after Paul explains in the previous section about the law and the remedy that the gospel provides, he carries on with a thanksgiving concerning this glorious gospel which he's been entrusted to proclaim. Paul goes on to give his personal testimony from general gospel to the gospel impact in his own life. God had judged him and appointed him to his service and gave him strength for the job. And he uses the word diakonion for service, of which we get the word deacon, and not necessarily the office of deacon, which we'll examine in a few weeks, but general servant, of which we are all as Christians called to be. But then you'll notice the language Paul uses about himself, his former life. He calls himself a blasphemer, a sinner, walking in unbelief. Of course, this was his life before he knew Jesus. But how could this be? This is the guy who was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was flawless when it came to the practice of the law. He was trained in one of the most prestigious rabbinical schools in history. They don't let just any sinner in there. They don't let blasphemers in there. Paul had a, a, a zeal for Yahweh and the people of Israel. How can he say this about himself? He had been confronted by Christ. Christ revealed himself to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had been an opponent of the church. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. Any opponent of the church is an opponent of God and of Christ. But here, in this event, Paul's sinfulness was revealed. Blinded by the holiness of Christ, he saw himself for who he truly was, a lawbreaker condemned. But that's the thing about the holiness of God and his law. It opens our eyes to his mercy and grace that is in Christ Jesus. Who is the mercy and grace of the Father? Christ revealing himself to Paul was his mercy. Christ breaking him was his kindness. This was God's plan for Paul from all eternity, that this opponent of the church would then suffer for Christ's sake for the advancement of the gospel to the nations. God had mercy on Paul. Paul said he was doing these things out of ignorance and unbelief. Unbelief 
and literally using the term unfaithfulness being the root sin behind all of his actions. But God had mercy. Paul uses the language of God's grace literally superabounded over him through Christ. And Paul essentially says, those extreme groups I just listed a few sentences ago, if we look back at verses 9 through 11 again, we talked about last week. He says, those, these extreme groups I just listed to, count me as one of them. Grace abounding for the chief of sinners. And in the middle of this paragraph, Paul puts the, the meat on the sandwich, if you will. In verse 15, look again at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the protoss, the first. Why did Christ come into this world? To teach peace? To bring harmony? To topple the Roman government? No, to save sinners. He came to redeem his people, to rescue sinners, you and me. And Paul calls himself the foremost. Again, if we're going to get in the comparison game, how can this guy call himself the first of sinners? Well, this should be the mentality of all of us personally. I can't read this passage and not think it is my autobiography. I'm with you, Paul. I am the co-chief. And when we come to know Jesus and are confronted with the holiness of God, we recognize, we realize our depravity, our total depravity, our total sinfulness before him. We become ashamed of our, our thoughts, our actions, and our motivations. And we also know the covering of our shame. Our Savior's blood and righteousness has covered us. So when we sing, when we praise him, we remember our sin, and we give inexpressible thanks and praise to the one who has covered us. As a matter of fact, that's how Paul opens and closes this paragraph. But before... Before that, we, we look at why Christ saved us. Saved us. Look at, again at verses 16 through 17. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So why did Christ bestow mercy on Paul and on us, for that matter? What was the goal? Well, look here. There's another, so that, as it literally reads. So that, if you remember last week. So that in him, Christ might display his perfect patience as a display of his mercy and his perfect patience. His character is the show. He displays he is mighty to save. Paul wasn't anything. None of us are anything. Christ is everything. He displays his patience for us through Paul as an example for us of who he is, not us. We don't get pats on our back for our salvation. It's not our birthday celebration. It's his. 
He is the VIP of the party. We just get to have some of his cake. He shares his party with us, his guests. What grace and what glory. Oh, yeah, and then Paul erupts in a praise chorus. All of what God has done for us is ultimately to show himself. When we talk about what it is to show his glory, what about his glory, it is to display who he is, to reveal who he is. He desires to reveal himself of who he is to all of us. The king of ages, the king immortal, the invisible but demonstrably powerful God. To him and only him be the praise. To him and only him be the honor. To him and only him alone are the glory forever and ever. And to reflect back on what Alex preached a few weeks ago, this, brothers and sisters, is boasting. This is the only boasting that is good. We boast in our gracious God. So are you tempted to make the gospel about you? God loved me so much. He was thinking of me and wanting to spend forever with me. He didn't want to spend forever without me. Really? Really? Now, make no mistake. God loves his people dearly. Make no mistake of that. However, we are not the ultimate reason for the gospel. The glory of the blessed God is. And brothers and sisters, why would we want anything else? What greater joy is it for us that everything we have is attributed to him? And we know in our heart of hearts that was what we were created for. That is our joy. That is our happiness. But say, it's not necessarily the gospel that we often center around us. Maybe it's your service to him. You make singing to the Lord about you. You make preaching and teaching about you. You make sharing your faith about you. You make bringing gifts and care packages to others about you. You say, that's not me. Well, okay. Well, does it bother you when someone else does it? Does it bother you when someone else's teaching gets more attention? Does it bother you when someone else was already there and fixed the problem in that person, at that person's house before you could even get to it? That's part of our fallen nature. That's the flesh that keeps creeping its ugly head. Christian, as long as God's glory is magnified, the saints are taken care of and sinners are saved, let's be content. Regardless, regardless of who did it, and regardless if I was a key factor in it. My, my, my life is merely to display his mercy and his grace and his patience. And all of our life as a church body is to be aimed at the glory of God through the gospel of saving sinners. Not only does this purpose in saving sinners display his glory, but it also motivates us to persevere. Look at verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul moves from praise now to a charge, literally a command. It's the same word he uses in verses 3 and 5. A command to Timothy. This command I entrust to you, Timothy. And what is this charge or command? Well, he's going back to what he said in verses 3 and 5. That he, Timothy, that he would correct those in error and teach the sound doctrine entrusted to him. And Paul then attaches a few confirmations of God's call and a warning. First, he says, do this in, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And this charge, this command is connected to that. And this is probably referring to the setting apart of Timothy by the church to be an overseer and servant of the word. The church's call in his life is the reflection of Christ's call of him. He would be a man to serve Christ's church. And Paul calls on him to remember this. Remember this call as confirmed by the church. Because, as we see from the rest of these verses, 18 through 20, there will be an all-out assault. Christ's servants are the bullseye of Satan's schemes. So Paul calls on Timothy to remember his calling by God through the church so that he will fight the good fight. Correcting false doctrine and teaching the truth will be an everyday battle of which he will not be able to fight alone. His faith will be tested. His conscience will be challenged. The desire to persevere in the fight will wane. And you want an example of this? A battle lost? Well, look at the end of verses 19 through 20. In verses 19 through 20, uh, ESV translated as some have departed or some have rejected. But it's the same word he uses in verses uh, 3 and 6 of certain persons. Certain persons have by rejecting sound teaching, the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of Christ and his apostles, by rejecting this, they have made a shipwreck of their faith. What a truly sad statement. Paul then goes on to name names. Who are they? Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, we don't know much about these men, most likely, They were part of this group that was in the church that had been led astray or were leading others astray and teaching contrary to the gospel. And these were men who had made professions of faith. They were baptized and probably teachers in the church. But what happened? Paul goes on to explain that he had handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is an interesting statement here. Paul uses a a similar statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In that passage, 
The issue is of a man who is, is, who is walking publicly and unrepentantly in sexual immorality. He was to be dismissed from the church because of this. So when Paul is writing about delivering over to Satan, he was referring to excommunication. That, per, that person was to be dismissed from the temple of God, which is the church, and given over to the world, Satan's temporary and limited realm. And Matthew 18 gives us the protocol of how church discipline is to go. First, you go to your brother and confront him. Second, if he doesn't listen, bring it to one or two more, uh, one or two more people with you and do the same. Three, if he doesn't listen to them, bring it to the church. And four, if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as you would a lost person, delivering him to Satan that maybe, maybe he will come to his senses. It's not a declaration that this person was never converted because there's a chance that they will repent. But as far as we can tell, we can no longer call you a brother in Christ. We can't in good conscience allow you to be a member here and take the Lord's Supper. So delivering someone over to Satan was the language Paul would use for the final step of church discipline. And in this case, for Hymenaeus and Alexander, it wasn't for unrepentant sexual immorality like 1 Corinthians 5. No, it was for false teaching. And there was an obvious confrontation about that because it says they didn't repent. They were excommunicated. But notice the language Paul uses here. It's the same type of language he used in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians, he handed the church member over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that, and again, another, so that, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now back to the instance of this text this morning. He says, I have handed him over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. So the aim of the discipline for them as individuals is their repentance, that they would come back. It's not purely retributive, but it's out of care for their souls and for the care of the churches. And he notice what he wants them to turn from. Blasphemy. Cursing or slandering God. So what were they teaching? We don't know exactly. But Paul calls it blasphemy, a reviling of God. But notice something. Look back at how Paul described himself, his past life in verse 13. He says, Though formerly, formerly, I was a blasphemer. Blasphemer. God had mercy on him. And if God had mercy on Paul, he could show mercy to Hymenaeus and Alexander. So now all this talk about excommunication in this passage is not necessarily meant to be a thorough uh, instruction on church discipline, for we have other passages for that, but it functions as a case example of what to do for false teaching. It functions both as an example of what to do and a warning to Timothy. Be on guard. 
Where is your aim and purpose in instructing the church, Timothy? Continue to teach what I have taught, Timothy. Do not stray away from it, Timothy. Fight the good fight and persevere, even when the battle seems to be a losing battle. Why, Timothy? What is the message that's going to sustain you? What is the message you are to proclaim continually, of which Paul had been entrusted in giving that entrustment to Timothy? That Christ came into the world to save sinners. That he came into the world to save sinners, all to the glory of the only King of ages, the only mighty God, to display his glorious grace and mercy. This, Timothy, this church is the message. This is the message that gets you up every morning. This is the message that sustains you when you bury your spouse, when you bury your child, when you lose your job, when you have stage four cancer, when you are fired because you won't compromise on biblical convictions in the workplace. You will question whether it is worth it. Is following someone whom we read in the scriptures as being raised from the dead worth it? Brothers and sisters, holding on to the gospel is going to cost you in this life. False teachers aren't false because their, their path is hard. No, they are false because the, their path leads to an easy life, a life of no resistance, a life of popularity. Timothy, church, brothers and sisters, life in the gospel is excruciatingly hard. Second Timothy, Paul's sequel letter to this one, shows us that. As Paul explains to Timothy in that second letter, his last letter, he goes over and over again, his life with Timothy. Recognize, remember this. Even though Paul, Timothy saw it, he, he lived it with Paul. He reminds him of this. Now, please understand this. All true believers persevere to the end. Once one is converted to Christ, he keeps us and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. No one who is truly saved loses their salvation. However, that perseverance is a true perseverance. It is a life of trial and temptation and suffering. It is an everyday battle of faith and unbelief. And you can't say the Bible never warns you about this. So Paul, throughout his two letters to Timothy, continually warns him about what is to come in his service to Christ. So with Timothy, we fight the good fight. We wage the good warfare. Yes, you, you may not like Timothy or our pastors here be called to vocational ministry, but as a Christian, you are called to service in the church. You are called to service to neighbor. You are called to teaching in some capacity. You are called to be ambassadors for Christ. So you too are in the battle. But in it, but in it, remember the gospel message. Remember that this message is for God's glory to display himself. My life is not about me. 
It's about him. I die so that he lives through me. So we see in, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20, that Christ's purpose for those who believe in him, his glory through our salvation, should motivate us to persevere in service to him. Remind yourself of these things. That with Paul, we can identify ourselves with the foremost of sinners, can't we? I know I can. And remind yourself of this daily also. That Christ came into this world to save sinners. You and me. He came to save the most vile of sinners. He didn't come for the righteous, but for the wicked. He didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. Now, if you're here today, and this is the first time you've heard this message, this gospel of which we call, or maybe you're here and you've thought about it, but not really all that much. Remember this. Christ can save you. He can reconcile you to God and forgive you your sins. He died for our sins and rose from the grave. Trust him today. Cry out to him today. Call upon him today. Say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I, with Paul, I, I identify with that, Lord. I've reviled your name. I have committed all types of indecent acts. I have uh, been prideful. I've done all these things, Lord, and before you, a holy God, I am doomed. But Lord, I, I place everything, my everlasting hope and trust in you, Christ, and what you have done on the cross for my sins. If you call upon him, he will save you, forgive you your sins, and give you new life. So that's my challenge to you if you don't know him. Call upon him today. Christian, we never go beyond the gospel. Of course, we do grow in our knowledge and spiritual maturity, but we never go beyond the message of Christ died for me. He died for me to display his glory through his abundant grace and mercy. And we have reminders of this when we gather as a church. We have baptism and Lord's Supper, tangible reminders of the gospel. We hear the gospel read. We hear the gospel preached. We sing songs. And these, these songs are not for entertainment. They're not for our nostalgia. They're not merely for an emotional experience. They are incredible reminders of the truths in Scripture and what God has done for his people. How many of you have sung a song or a hymn when tragedy has struck? It's not the melody that gets you through. It's the words. At my children's school, the first few years is all memory work, essentially. Everything is, is rote memory. And you know how they make it so effective to the child's memory? Everything is put to song. Everything has a melody. So 
They memorize all the presidents of the United States. This is incredible that they can memorize all the presidents of the United States because it is put to melody. They memorize Latin verb conjugations by putting it to the tune of ants go marching one by one or something like that. Melodies create memories. Now, the memory as you get older fades, sadly. It's going to happen to all of us. But when you daily remember and recall that Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, and that for his glory, you don't forget that. You may forget your address or the year, but you don't forget that. You don't forget that when tragedy strikes, when people abandon you, when all other hopes are lost. You begin your day with thanksgiving and end it with praise. And you remind yourself of this entrusted doctrine. Not only that, but you remind your brothers and sisters in Christ of this entrusted doctrine. And reminders of this gospel is one of the means by which the saints indeed persevere to the end. Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for your mercy. We praise you for your patience. For you, there the king eternal. You are the immortal one. You are the only God. Invisible, yet you demonstrate your power for us daily. Remind us daily of your grace. Help us to deflect all praise to you. Lord, help us to persevere and finish the race and receive the crown, the crown of which all of us who long for his coming will receive. In Jesus' name, amen.